Sermon Audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. If you turn on your TVs, it's hard to avoid the reality that there are tragedies all around, shootings and killings and terrorist attacks. And uh, if you follow the news from the U.S., we've seen the numerous tragedies of police brutality and oftentimes have needed the reminder that black lives matter. And then the senseless, revengeful retaliation against the police, needing the reminder then that blue lives matter as well, a reference to the uniformed officer. But why do we even have to mention specific types of lives that matter? Is it necessary to specify that Chinese lives matter or that women's lives matter or that young boys' lives matter? I mean, after all, doesn't each life matter? Unfortunately, human history reveals that human beings and whole societies, even religious institutions at times, have not always believed that all lives matter. There are atrocities as tragic as a Holocaust where Jewish lives did not matter. Terrorist attacks and school shootings where not even children's lives matter. And even just the all-too-frequent murder on the street. And while killing and murder has been part of humanity ever since sin first entered our human race, doesn't it seem like we're living at a time when it's just spiraling out of control? Does anyone else feel that way? Why do some lives matter and other lives don't? Have you ever thought about why lives matter at all? The disregard for human life seems to be so pervasive and we can just scratch our heads in disbelief and wonder, is there a solution to it? Well, the problem, of course, is a problem of the human heart. And Jesus Christ said, or Jesus Christ came to die on the cross for us sinners, to change the human heart. And he said that while you might think that it's only those who murder that are guilty of murder, he said even those who have a heart full of contempt towards someone are guilty of it. He said in Matthew chapter 5, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, which means you're a worthless one, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. See, friends, until we all, all of us in, hu in the human race, believe that every person's life matters, we will simply continue to see the senseless killing, the exploitation, and, any, and the injuries committed against other people. Hatred and contempt for others isn't inborn but sin is. And if love isn't taught, then hate will be learned. And when people are taught to hate and not taught how to love, it can lead to murder. And Jesus came to change our human hearts by reversing the effects of sin and sending his spirit to transform us from the inside out. And one of the areas that Jesus taught his disciples often about was this issue of loving each other, of loving our neighbors, and loving our enemies. And it happens to be one of the areas in our life that needs the most transformation. It's one of those areas we often find most challenging. And it is an area in our life that will get addressed pretty much every day that you live. 
because you simply can't avoid all contact with other people as much as you may want to. And so today we're going to look at one of the most basic principles in all of the Scriptures, one of the most basic laws of the Christian faith. And I know that you know countless other instructions and laws, I'm sure you do, and that you know many of them, and maybe you're ignorant of some of them, but the Bible has made it quite simply for us, simple for us. We'll look at what it means to love your neighbor and then love your enemies. Now, many of you have heard, love your neighbor as yourself. But do you know where in the Bible it comes from? Do you know how often it's quoted in the Bible? Well, after today, you'll know for sure. I'll invite you to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 19. But let me summarize it for you. Leviticus chapter 19. As you know, this is the law given to Moses, to the Israelites, while they were on Mount Sinai, or while uh, Moses was on Mount Sinai, and the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And Moses had given the list of instructions called the Ten Commandments, and Leviticus 19 echoes much of the Ten Commandments. Among the laws given to them, the Israelites were to be a people who represented the Lord their God. So they had to be holy. In other words, set apart from the rest of the world, different from everyone else, because their God was Yahweh the Lord. And they were required to honor their parents and to honor the Sabbath or the rest day. Why? God says, because I am the Lord your God. And they were forbidden from the worship of idols and graven images, for I am the Lord your God, he said. And they were required to keep the sacrifices holy. And notice how those requirements, including the one to honor the authority placed over them, have a vertical relationship with Yahweh, the Lord their God. And then come a long list, starting in um, verse 9, of laws that required them to consider their horizontal relationship with their fellow Israelites. And among those were, if you're following along, that they were to leave the gleanings of their fields and their vineyards for the needy and the strangers. Why? Because I am the Lord your God, he said. They should not be unselfish. They should care for those around them. And they were told you must not steal from or cheat against or lie to or swear falsely to or oppress or rob your neighbor. In other words, don't take advantage of anyone. They were not to be unkind or evil to the deaf or the blind, and they must be just and fair even with the poor and the rich alike. So all people should be treated equally like human beings. And they must not slander their neighbor or endanger their neighbor's life or hate him or seek revenge or bear a grudge against them, but they must correct or rebuke them honestly from committing further evils in order not to share in their guilt. So in other words, they should not do anything harmful to others, but in fact, if, they, if that person was doing something wrong or evil, then they should correct them or else be equally guilty of such wrongs. So notice, friends, that loving your neighbor does not necessarily mean always agreeing with their choices or their behavior. Instead, they are too, and it is in verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So there it is. If you've ever wondered where in the Bible it is, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 8, love your neighbor as yourself. But that's not the only place it says it in the Scriptures because Jesus repeated it when he spoke to the scribes. Paul repeated it. James quoted it. And he summarized, and all of them summarized that verse itself to summarize the whole law. 
All of the laws against our, uh, regarding our fellow person can be summarized in love your neighbor as yourself. Take the rich young man who wanted to earn eternal life. He asked Jesus, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus said, well, obey the commandments. And he asked Jesus, which ones? So Jesus listed several of them. And he ended that list with love your neighbor as yourself in Matthew chapter 19. And then there was that scribe who wanted to know which of the commandments was the most important. In other words, the foremost, the greatest, the first commandment. What is the one that you must obey? And Jesus said, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. But Jesus didn't stop there. He continued his response by including, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. And he concluded, there is no commandment greater than these, plural. The Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, he taught on the spiritual gifts, encouraged people to be devoted to each other, to love each other sincerely, to honor each other and live peacefully together. And then he wrote, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. He listed some of the Ten Commandments. He wrote that they and whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. So friends, as we talk about discipleship, about following Christ, this is definitely one of those you can't forget. Love your neighbor as yourself. The Apostle James as well on showing favoritism, he said the royal law is found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. So we must learn to love people like Christ loved people. After all, if Moses commanded it, Jesus, Paul, and James, they're all chiming in. Don't you think we should be paying attention to this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself? Well, it's a good thing that you came today because hopefully today, after today you'll think of all kinds of practical reasons of why it's important that all, each and every life matters. See, every time that we violate the law regarding our fellow human being, it demonstrates a lack of sincere, godly love. It's very natural for us to dehumanize people, people whom we don't love. When someone hates a particular race, then it isn't the individual with the feelings and needs because those are just beings that represent an entire race that the person hates. Or when a terrorist wants to attack a country or a religious group, he or she doesn't see the target as a human being, as a person with needs and feelings. They see, the person, they, they see it as a, a representative of a group of people that they want to inflict harm upon. And you might say, well, I'm not a hater, I'm not a racist, I'm not a terrorist. Ah, but what about when you're driving along the highway, all those other cars that are in your way? Don't you tend to think of them as just irritants and they're, ju they're just cars without human beings that are driving them? Or the other people in the security line at the airport who are holding things up and maybe they're going to make you miss your plane. They're not people. They're just irritating flesh over bones that are taking such a long time. See, when we dehumanize people, it shows that we don't see them as God sees them and it demonstrates that we don't love them. Because if we loved them, we would certainly not treat them with such indignity. Because if you recognize that that slow driver in the fast lane was Austin, wouldn't you let up off of that, uh, that accelerator instead of tailgating him the whole time? You'd, oh, that's Austin. Oh, I better back up. Right? 
And if that terrorist's mother was among those in the stadium that they were about to bomb, he or she would not likely not carry out the attack. Or if the person holding up the line was your pastor, it was me holding up the line, would you still be as pushy and irritated? Probably not. And when we acknowledge that the person is a fellow human being, a person with a name and a life, then we are mandated to love our neighbor as ourselves. Because as long as we still think of them as nothing more than just a skeleton with flesh on it, it seems easier than to separate ourselves from that mandate to love. And those people who come behind us to use the same restroom we've just used, or walk through the same park that we've just walked through, or who tidy up the hotel room that we've just slept in, or those who handle our reservations, they are all people, even if we don't know them personally. And Jesus was especially noticed for the way that he treated his society's outcasts. Need I remind you that he loved the unlovable as precious human beings. He touched the lepers who came to him for healing, or the woman that was known as an immoral woman was permitted to wash his feet and anoint them. And he sat and ate with tax collectors and sinners. He rescued the woman that was caught in adultery. He chose not to condemn her, but told her, go, from now on, sin no more. So if we loved people like Jesus loves people, we would consider every person as precious. And being precious, they would be worthy of care and concern and grace. Because really, loving your neighbor boils down to this. It boils down, how much worth have you ascribed the person what esteem have you given them? How do you value them? See, the thing is, it's not up to us to determine the worth of a person. The worth of a person, the worth we ought to ascribe to any person, should be the worth that God, their maker, ascribes to them. See, we oftentimes ascribe different values to different things. When you get a prize in your Happy Meal, it's probably some cheap toy. Do you prize it as much as what you have earned and saved up for and worked hard for? No, of course not. Because how you treat those things shows the worth that you have ascribed to them. And people, just like all of creation, belong to God. He made them. And what is the worth that He ascribes to them? Well, people are distinct from all of creation, which we should also ascribe worth to, but people are distinct because people bear the image of God. They reflect His glory in ways that everything else can't because we as people have emotions and we can make moral choices. We can reflect God's character. So all of creation is precious to Him, and so we must describe the worth that the Creator and owner ascribes. How much more then should we ascribe worth to people and treat them as precious, not because they might be valuable to us, but because they are valuable to God? See, how I treat something should really depend on its value to its owner. Let's say you had a car that you've been building since you first learned how to drive, and you refurbished it yourself, you, you bought secondhand uh, used parts, and you refurbished those parts, and you put together a pretty decent car. And if you were to lend it to me, I shouldn't drive it and treat it the way that I would consider the value of those parts that were put together. I should treat that car with the same kind of value that you place upon that car, even if it is an old clunker. 
Now, you and I tend to show care and respect to family and friends because they are valuable to us. But strangers whom we don't see much value in, we often don't care for as much. We'll offer the better seat or the last roll or go out of our way for a friend. But if it was for a stranger, we'd think twice. It shows that naturally we esteem people differently. And of course, that's why it's so painful when someone who should love us treats us with indignity. Disrespect can be demonstrated in your tone of voice or a roll of the eyes. Disrespect can be expressed verbally, words that devalue like, well, you're stupid or you're a jerk. So spouses and parents and children, listen up. And Pastor Eric, listen up. Don't use the kinds of words or tone that might cause people to feel that they're not worth very much. And if you think about it, why are people valuable? It, it depends on our belief that God is their creator. You know, there's no real moral obligation to love people if naturalism or the, the, the philosophy that, that the universe just happened by a course of nature, if naturalism is how the earth began or how the universe began. Naturalism is the belief that all of the universe is the result of natural processes, starting with the origin of the universe and the microevolutionary changes over billions of years. And if that were true, that would make me no more than a product of the circumstances and provided with certain genetics and an environment. And that would be the same of you. And according to naturalism, the only reason we should care for anything outside of ourselves is because we are all connected in some way by nature. So my concern for you is really only some kind of a self-preservative care. But see, if I'm a creature given a purpose for living, created by a loving God, and if every other human being is precious to God, it means that I am worthy of a certain measure of esteem and respect, and so are you. So how I treat you does depend on my faith that God is your creator. And all who truly understand and believe that we're made in the image of the living God will demonstrate it by the way that we treat each other as someone precious to God. So as a disciple of Jesus Christ, as a follower... Loving people means loving as Jesus did. How do you do that? You must remain in Him, like a branch remains in the vine, and you will abide in His love, because it is His love that enables you to love others like He does. And John writes, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So it's really being others-oriented having, as the Ezos say, a rational preoccupation with those around us. And it's something that we have to be taught. If as children we're not taught to be concerned about others, then as adults we will also not be considerate of others. Because if our neighbors, whether they're strangers or they're our relatives, if they were truly precious to us, then we would be sensitive to their feelings. And we wouldn't slander or insult them as the, the law commands us against. We would treat their property with care, and we wouldn't steal from them, like the law says. We would regard their views and opinions, and we wouldn't interrupt them. We would treasure their lives and not exploit them or kill them, and we would respect their bodies and their personal space. And you know what? The outward appearance of our neighbor should not determine how we choose to treat them, because it is their inherent preciousness to God that determines how they should be treated. So the lives of the elderly, even if they are demented and frail and weak and incapable, 
or the lives of children still in the womb, though still developing and utterly dependent, or the lives of the terminally ill, even though they might be unable to give anything to others, or the lives of the disabled, though they might not be able to communicate, or the lives of the poor, even if they would be fully to blame for their circumstances, each of those lives, whatever value others or society would place in them, they are precious to God and requires us to treat them accordingly. So in the Christian faith, there is no room for treating some people as less precious than others. You and I do not have permission from God to consider only some people as precious. To consider them precious based on their gender or their race or their ethnicity or their nationality or their religion, even their behavior, because they are precious to God and therefore should be treated accordingly. And we really need to believe that. We have to truly believe that God has placed a very high worth on them and that He also judges our thoughts and our attitudes toward them. To us, they may be nameless and faceless, but to God they are that precious that He sent His only begotten Son that they might have eternal life. So loving our neighbors as we love ourselves really summarizes very well the commandments. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, I already love my neighbor. Well, instead of asking, do I love my neighbor, ask, who is coming after me, around me, that I have esteemed, or have I esteemed them as precious to God? So the reason that you might pick up the trash as you walk through the park is because someone behind you would appreciate that the trash has been picked up. Or the reason that you wipe the sink in the airplane bathroom when you're done is so that the person who uses it next will have a privilege of a clean bathroom. Or the reason that husbands and children should pick up their dirty laundry around the room is because you want to make life easier for whoever it is whose duty is to do the laundry. And the reason you don't leave your shopping cart in the parking lot is because there's someone who's going to park there after you, and they shouldn't have to move your cart out of the way. Now, you know to love your neighbor. What about those people that don't treat us the way they ought to? What about those who don't consider us as precious? Well, Jesus had a few words about that as well. And you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And you'll see what Jesus had to say about loving enemies. In verse 38, he says, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Eye for eye and tooth for tooth. That was a well-known phrase from the law of Moses. But in its context, the phrase basically is limiting how much a person can be punished for any injury that they have committed. And God is certainly a just God, and justice and righteousness must prevail. Now, it's easy how to such a phrase could suddenly become a reason for vengeance. The Bible says eye for eye, tooth for tooth, so I get to hit you back. Right? But Jesus said, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. And he gave some examples of the kind of response to some, someone who has or desires to injure you, to take advantage of you or exploit you. He says, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other. 
Now, we often speak of going the extra mile for someone who has done above and beyond their job. Customer service representative who made the phone calls for you, took care of your situation, you say, wow, they went the extra mile for me. But Jesus is talking about going the extra mile to someone who's forcing you to do something unpleasant or something that you don't want to do. So sometimes it might be easy for us to go the extra mile. It might be in our nature because we know we'll receive a reward or a commendation or because we simply take pride in our work. But it's not in our nature to do it for someone who's mean to us or who's just been abusive in their language to us. And then Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So love your neighbor and hate your enemy was also a well-known phrase based on the law of Moses. But Moses' law never actually said, hate your enemy. So where did it come from? Well, possibly it came from the instruction that Moses gave the Israelites about the Moabites and the Ammonites. Because those were people who did not welcome Israel as they left Egypt, and they instead tried to place a curse on the Israelites. And Moses' instruction to them, because they had resisted their entry through the land, even though Ammon and Moab were kin to the Israelites, his instruction was, you shall never seek their peace or their prosperity all your days. Ammon and Moab were sons of Lot. In other words, they would be cousins to Isaac and second cousins to Israel. They were next of kin, really. And yet they didn't, they didn't treat the Israelites as next of kin. And so there was an instruction to not seek their peace. But if love, yourself, your, uh, if love your neighbor as yourself wasn't already challenging enough for us, then Jesus wants his disciples to love enemies and those who are downright against us. Why? Well, he gives the reason. Because it's God's character. God the Father who, he says, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So in other words, the good and life-giving and life-sustaining forces of the sun and the rain, they fall equally on all people, whether they are good or evil. So you and I have to now learn to do good to all people, just like God does. And just like loving your neighbor as yourself requires the Spirit of God in us, well, how much more so to love your enemy? So we cannot separate ourselves from the vine and the life-giving love of Jesus when we are to, trying to fulfill the law of loving your neighbor and loving your enemy because love is the fruit of the Spirit of God. That kind of love does good even to those who are unrighteous and evil. And no, it won't come naturally. All those who show disrespect to us or are mean to us or take advantage of us or insult or injure us, it requires God's supernatural strength. So if you have to clean up after your roommate, even though he or she never does it for you, well, that's what love is. If you have to be kind to a customer who's just insulted you, well, that's what love is. If you have to show courtesy to another passenger who just stole your seat, well, 
That's what love is. And in order to do that, it takes faith. Again, you have to believe that God will one day bring the evil person to justice and that he will one day reward those who do good. Or else, if you didn't believe that, you'd think, well, I have to take justice into my own hands. I have to teach that person how to drive. And just like with everything, when you're a disciple of Christ, you need to move from unbelief to belief so that even in this area of loving others, it becomes more of a reality in our lives. And just like Jesus was referring to, there's a greater reward for loving enemies since loving those who love you, that's what the pagans can do. That's what anyone else can do. That's the same kind of love the tax collectors love with. And if you greet your brothers, well, that's what pagans do. And if you don't believe that the evildoer will receive his or her just punishment, well, you're likely to seek vengeance for that driver who crosses into your lane just as you're about to pass. So believe that God will reward you someday in the future. Maybe not in this life, maybe not until you'll be in His eternal presence in heaven, or else you'll be discouraged from doing anything more than the pagans or the tax collectors would do. So as I conclude, you know, the scribes who asked Jesus about eternal life, they knew that He had to love their neighbor as Himself. And then He wanted to justify Himself. He said, so who is my neighbor then? And Jesus told a parable. I think all of you know this parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus specifically chose a priest and a Levite as the one who passed by the man who was robbed and left there beaten. And he deliberately used a Samaritan to be the hero of this story. Because when the person was asked, which one was a neighbor to the man who had been beaten? Well, the answer was clear. The Samaritan was the neighbor. In other words, you can be a neighbor to anyone by choosing to care about them, by choosing to consider their life as precious. Does it mean that you have to agree with all of their opinions and their standards for right and wrong or good and evil? No, it doesn't. And all too often, the label hate is used against Christians who stand on biblical standards of right and wrong. Listen for it. If you don't agree on their stance on something, you're called a hater. But no, if we show respect dignity, esteem, and value, and consider them as precious, even in the way we respond to them, even in the way that we behave towards them, then no one can disagree with us that Christians speak of love and demonstrate love. So in all of your conversations and interactions this week, demonstrate the love of Christ by showing your utmost respect for people. Treat them as precious to God, even if you don't know their name or see their face. And whatever their behavior happens to be, don't let that determine the value of the person. How does God see them? Does He love them? Do they belong to Him? And would He like them to see eternal life? Yes. Even if they've set themselves against you as your enemy. Let us pray. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBC CPH. Thank you for listening.